0: You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Then Yahweh said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent... Or unknowingly, may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities, and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city, and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city, and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbor unknowingly, and did not hate him in the past and he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is high priest at that time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home, to the town from which he fled. So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba that is Hebron in the hill country of Judah. And beyond the Jordan east of Jericho they appointed Bezer, in the wilderness on the tableland, from the tribe of Reuben and Ramoth in Gilead, from the tribe of Gad and Golan in Bashan, from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the stranger sojourning among them, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there, so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites came to Eleazar the priest, and to Joshua the son of Nun, and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. And they said to them at Shiloh, in the land of Canaan, Yahweh commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in, along with their pasture lands for our livestock. So by command of Yahweh the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. The lot came out, for the clans of the Kohathites. So those Levites who were descendants of Aaron the priest received by lot from the tribes of Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin, 13 cities. And the rest of the Kohathites received by lot from the clans of the tribe of Ephraim, from the tribe of Dan, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, 10 cities. The Gershonites received by lot from the clans of the tribe of Issachar, from the tribe of Asher, from the tribe of Naphtali, and from the half-tribe of Manasseh in Bashan, 13 cities. The Mirorites, according to their clans, received from the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the tribe of Zebulun, 12 cities. These cities and their pasture lands, the people of Israel gave by lot to the Levites, as Yahweh had commanded through Moses. Out of the tribe of the people of Judah and the tribe of the people of Simeon, they gave the following cities mentioned by name which went to the descendants of Aaron, one of the clans of the Kohathites, who belonged to the people of Levi, since the lot fell to them first. They gave them Kiriath Arba, Arba being the father of Anak, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah, along with the pasture lands around it. But the fields of the city and its villages had been given to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, as his possession. And to the descendants of Aaron, the priest, they gave Hebron, the city of refuge for the manslayer, with its pasture lands, Libna, with its pasture lands, Jatir with its pasture lands, Eshtimoa, with its pasture lands, Holon, with its pasture lands, Debir, with its pasture lands, Ain, with its pasture lands, jutta with its pasture lands, Bethshemesh, with its pasture lands, nine cities out of these two tribes. Then out of the tribe of Benjamin, Gibeon with its pasture lands, Geba with its pasture lands, Anathoth with its pasture lands, and Almon with its pasture lands, four cities. The cities of the descendants of Aaron, the priests, were in all thirteen cities with their pasture lands. As to the rest of the Kohathites belonging to the Kohathite clans of the Lephites, the cities allotted to them were out of the tribe of Ephraim. To them were given Shechem, the city of refuge for the manslayer, with its pasture lands in the hill country of Ephraim Gazer with its pasture lands Kibzaim with its pasture lands Beth Horon with its pasture lands four cities and out of the tribe of Dan Alteki with its pasture lands <Elohim> with its pasture lands Aijalon with its pasture lands Gathrimon with its pasture lands four cities and out of the half tribe of Manasseh Taanach with its pasture lands and Gathrimon with its pasture lands two cities The cities of the clans of the rest of the Kohathites were ten in all with their pasture lands, and to the Gershonites, one of the clans of the Levites, were given out of the half-tribe of Manasseh, Golan in Bashan with its pasture lands, the city of refuge for the manslayer, and Bishterah with its pasture lands, two cities, and out of the tribe of Issachar, Kishion with its pasture lands, Dabarath with its pasture lands, Jarmuth with its pasture lands, En Ganim with its pasture lands, four cities, and out of the tribe of Asher, Mishal with its pasture lands, Abdon with its pasture lands, Helcath with its pasture lands and Rehob with its pasture lands, four cities. And out of the tribe of Naphtali, Kadesh in Galilee with its pasture lands, the city of refuge for the manslayer, Hamath-Dor with its pasture lands and Kartan with its pasture lands, three cities. The cities of the several clans of the Gershonites were in all thirteen cities with their pasture lands, and to the rest of the Levites, the Mirarite clans, were given out of the tribe of Zebulun, Joknim with its pasture lands, Kartah with its pasture lands, Dimna with its pasture lands, Nahalal with its pasture lands, four cities, and out of the tribe of Reuben, Bazar with its pasture lands, Jehaz with its pasture lands, Ketamoth with its pasture lands, and Mephaath with its pasture lands, four cities, and out of the tribe of Gad, Ramoth in Gilead, with its pasture lands, the city of refuge for the manslayer, Mahanaim, with its pasture lands, Heshbon, with its pasture lands, Jazer, with its pasture lands, four cities in all. As for the cities of the several mirrorite clans, that is the remainder of the clans of the Levites, those allotted to them, were in all twelve cities. The cities of the Levites in the midst of the possession of the people of Israel were in all 48 cities with their pasture lands. These cities each had its pasture land around it, so it was with all these cities. Thus Yahweh gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And Yahweh gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, For Yahweh had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that Yahweh had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 696 of this podcast. Today is Friday, August 25th, 2023. And that was a reading of Joshua chapters 20 and 21 in the Old Testament, which is not to say the outdated Testament. That's not what we call it. We call it the Old Testament. That is to say it is the Testament that came before the new one, the current one regarding Christ. But then everything in the Old Testament is building up to, and you have to remember this, it's building up to Messiah. It's building up to the fulfillment of the promise, which is in the Old Testament and told to us in the book of Genesis that God would lift ultimately this curse that he leveled on the man and the woman and creation. Not the serpent. The serpent doesn't get the curse lifted, but man, male and female, created in God's image after his likeness to fill the earth and subdue it, be fruitful and multiply, God would lift that curse ultimately in Jesus, in Yeshua, in Christ. That is the Christ. That is the Messiah. That is the Savior. But here in Joshua 20 and 21, you have a lot of cities named. You have a lot of repetition of the pasture lands. It's really important that you understand the pasture lands go with the cities. It's not just the cities and you got to stay inside the cities. No, no, the pasture lands as well. Why is that important? Because when you live in the city, you have to get your food from somewhere. Where are you going to get your food from? Well, ideally, it's going to be locally grown. You're going to have locally raised sheep, for instance, cattle, for instance. From the cattle, you might not just get meat. You'll get dairy as well, probably. You'll get milk from the sheep. You're not going to just get meat, although lamb is quite good in my opinion. You're not going to just get goats for meat. You'll also probably get some milk from the goats. You'll also get wool from the sheep, which you can make into clothes, and between the sheep and the goats and the cattle, you should have a pretty good supply of food and clothing, and then the cities complete the provision by giving you shelter. So we have this repetition and a fulfillment of all the promises that God made to the forefathers of these Israelites. To Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they would get a possession. They would have land. They would have the promised land, which is Canaan, which, interestingly, God had given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob well before this taking of the inheritance. We're talking centuries before. We're talking 430 years of hard bondage in Egypt, which started with Jacob still being alive, coming into Egypt during a famine, seven years of famine, seven years of famine in which by the end, everyone except for the priests of Egypt came to mortgage themselves, their wives, their children, their homes, their livestock, everything that they owned to the Pharaoh. When God delivered his people out of Egypt, he wasn't just delivering the people who were alive right then. He was delivering generations yet to be born. And he wasn't just keeping a promise in an abstract sense. He was keeping a specific promise that he had made to Abraham, who in his old age had no children. He had wealth, he had servants, he had acclaim, he was known, he was respected. God was keeping a specific promise that he made to Isaac, the son of Abraham's old age with his wife, Sarah. God was keeping a specific promise that he had made to Jacob who wrestled with God. And that's why Jacob had his name changed to Israel. There was a contending, there was a wrestling with God, which left Jacob walking with a limp and also led to the change of his name to Israel. And here we have the descendants of Israel. That's why we call them Israelites, because they come from their forefather. Interestingly enough, they're not named after their mother. And interestingly enough, when we talk about God, we're talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not to say that God wasn't the God of Sarah and Rebekah and Rachel and Leah and their handmaidens, who also became wives for Jacob. But we understand that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who was renamed Israel, are symbolic. They are representative. They represent to God their wives, their children, future generations yet to be born. You call these people Israelites because they are represented to God by Israel. And when God sees the Israelites, he remembers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the promise made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Vice versa, you have less perfectly or less suitably, perhaps, in many ways. And yet, by God's design, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob representing God to their families. God says he wants this to happen. And it is, first and foremost, the responsibility of these fathers these husbands, these heads of households to carry out faithfully what it is that God has commanded and to make sure that it has been carried out. The covenant that God makes and reaffirms is with the heads of households. And then from there, it comes down to the members of the household. And you can say, well, what about their wives? Why isn't it the case that the covenant is said to have been with Abraham and Sarah. Clearly, Sarah has some interaction with God. And yet, it's interesting, when she laughs, there's a different characteristic, there's a different quality to her laughter than when Abraham laughs. There's a different kind of a response. And even just how it's talked about, how it's communicated on into the New Testament, the women who are held up as exemplary And there are women who are held up as exemplary. They show up in the genealogy of Jesus, for instance, from the Old Testament, specifically, are not the wives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Have you ever thought about that? That we're not given Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, as these stellar examples to emulate or to follow after. The women we're actually given as examples are Rahab, Rahab. For instance, for example, Ruth, the Moabitess. Rahab was a prostitute, formerly, in a former life. Ruth was a Moabitess, not even an Israelite, except she was grafted in. She was adopted in, as we'll find later on when we get to that part of the Old Testament, Lord willing. You have Esther also held up as an example. She gets an entire book of the Old Testament dedicated to her story or rather God's story as it pertains to her and his people and how he is still fulfilling his promises. But in this case, he's fulfilling promises by using Esther to appeal to the king of a pagan people. And yet Esther is held up as this example. It's a curious thing. Coming back to Joshua chapter 20 and Joshua chapter 21 though, we have cities of refuge Let's get that squared away. And this is God saying to Joshua, appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you. This is a priority to God. And it reminds me of Micah 6.8. He's shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. These cities of refuge are an expression of the love for mercy, which God commands and requires of his people. You love mercy, which is to say what? For those who are guilty of manslaughter, there is to be a mercy. It's a command. They were never known to hate the person that they accidentally killed, and it was an accident. We have every reason to believe it was an accident. They've never hated that person. We don't recall a history of conflict where they were just always at each other's throats saying ugly, awful, mean things. No, there was no malice. There was no Menace. It wasn't that they wanted to kill this person. It was an honest mistake. It was a tragic mistake. This person lost their lives at the hands of the manslayer. We have to have some place to put the manslayer to keep him from being killed himself because God doesn't want the shedding of innocent blood. And even if the manslayer might be guilty of carelessness, that does not mean he is guilty of murder. But that is to say, too, That when hatred is known, when you have a alignment of means, motive, and opportunity, and it has been known that this person always hated that guy that he ended up killing. And he says it was an accident, but we all know they never got along. They were always quarreling. They were always fighting over things. There was a motive to get this guy out of the way. When that is a factor, you have reason to believe, and there is the testimony of multiple witnesses to it test that, yes, person A killed person B, who he always hated, they never got along, then that's murder and due justice comes into play at that point. We're no longer talking about love mercy in that context. Obey God. Walk humbly with God. Submit to what God said. You put the murderer to death. They pay for their crime with their life. That is justice. Do justice. In this episode, we're going to get into the interview that Tucker Carlson conducted with former President Donald Trump, who is, yes, the frontrunner for the Republican nomination to be president in 2024, which is just around the corner. We're going to get into that, and I have some thoughts in relation to Joshua 20 and 21, particularly the Cities of Refuge piece I have some thoughts on what happened yesterday in Fulton County, Georgia, regarding former President Donald Trump being arrested, surrendering to authorities, having his mugshot taken, being booked, released on bond, $200,000 bond. But for right now, let's talk specifically about the text and what it says. Verse 5, if the avenger of blood pursues him, that is the manslayer, They shall not give up the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. That is to say, the elders of the city that has been set aside as a city of refuge, a sanctuary city, you might say, per God, per God's instructions, per God's command and his requirement to love mercy, the city's elders shall not surrender the manslayer to the avenger of blood. Don't do it. Protect this man from being killed by the relative or the close friend of the one who lost their life tragically. Protect this man. Don't surrender him. You will not let him in for refuge. And then when the manslayer is no longer welcome, or he got on your nerves, or you just don't like him, or there is some kind of an exchange of money or favors being offered to send him out or some kind of a threat being made, don't give him up. You continue to protect him because God said so. That is very pertinent to our day in understanding what tension there may be betwixt doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with our God. The question of intent, the question of attitude and orientation and context matters immensely to God. The distinction between a premeditated hostile act on the one hand and an honest mistake matters immensely to God, and it should matter immensely to us. And if it doesn't matter to us, if we just shrug about it in a cynical way, in an apathetic way, we don't love justice and we don't actually even love mercy for that matter. Do you want to know who you should extend mercy to? It is the person who made an honest mistake. It was an oops. I'm sorry. I regret that. I didn't mean to do that. Even if the oops leads to the loss of someone else's life. If you find evidence that the loss of someone's life was premeditated, on the other hand, this was a scheme. This was planned out. The penalty is death. If it's murder, the penalty is death for the one who did the murdering. It's as simple as that. We're not talking about mercy if murder has been committed, and murder here is defined as premeditated, taking of an innocent life. We're not talking about mercy if you let the murderer live. We're talking about an injustice. We're, ta- we're, we're talking about a failure to be obedient to God. Plain and simple. If that murderer goes on to commit still more murders, You should feel the weight. You should feel as though you are guilty and responsible. It is your fault that you did not do justice when you had the opportunity to after the last murder. How I know that, in part, is because farther back in the Pentateuch, which we finished reading through and talking through in recent weeks, we see if... A man has an ox for instance that's been known to gore people and show a great deal of aggression and the man does not keep that ox penned up or kill the ox and then it goes and gores a neighbor and kills the neighbor the man who owned the ox is responsible he is guilty of murder and it says in exodus chapter 21 verse 29 Not just the ox is to be put to death if someone is killed by that ox who was in the habit of attacking people, goring people. Not just the ox is to be put to death. The owner of the ox is to be put to death. The owner of the ox is guilty of murder. He knew better. That is to say, too, that if we have murderers who are known to be murderers, we know that they planned it out. We know that they're guilty. We know that they did it. The evidence proves that conclusively. We have multiple eyewitnesses who saw them do the deed and we do not put them to death or whoever is responsible to put them to death does not put them to death. That is not justice. That is not mercy. That is not walking humbly before your God. And if such a man goes on to kill again, the ones who allowed him to live instead of putting him to death are guilty themselves of the murders that man commits. That's how it works. It's not no big deal. It's not really this gray issue when district attorneys in the U.S. are being put in position in cities here in the U.S. specifically to catch and release and not prosecute violent criminals in those communities. The police go out. They risk their lives. They risk being sued. They risk being destroyed by the corporate news media, the media industrial complex, as I've seen it referred to here recently, and not to be. The police go out, they risk their lives to enforce the law, to apprehend the perpetrator, to do so with the utmost care, totally blameless. They do it, he's arrested, taken back to jail, thrown in a jail cell, and if a George Soros-funded district attorney refuses to prosecute, he's released. He's back on the streets. That makes that district attorney, guilty of murder, if said violent criminal goes out and commits another murder. That makes George Soros, by extension, having set it all up like this, supposedly in the name of an open society, but it's just Satanism, godlessness, anarchy, that makes George Soros, by extension, guilty of the shedding of innocent blood. This is not no big deal. It's a big, big deal. But the flip side is, for those who say we should have sanctuary cities, for those who are accused of having committed a crime, in our context, it seems like sanctuary cities are always in reference to immigration. Someone's come into the country illegally. We have certain cities that have set themselves up years ago. Now they have a significant population of illegal immigrants. And they say, we're not going to deport them. We're not going to hand them over to the authorities and have them sent back to the countries they came from because they're here illegally, without permission. There is some precedent for something like that, and yet that's not what God prescribed. The cities of refuge weren't set up for every kind of crime and every kind of criminal. Most crimes in the Old Testament were punishable with restoring to those who had been harmed or damaged or wronged what had been stolen or damaged, restoring them their property, maybe even then some, depending on the situation. But these things were to be dealt with in that way, not putting thieves, robbers into perpetual storage in a prison. Oh, they're a thief? Yeah, let's put them to work, make them get a job and pay back the one they stole from everything that is owed. That is God's justice. That is better justice than what we currently have where we just warehouse people perpetually. And we warehouse them if they're thieves and we warehouse them if they're fraudsters and we warehouse them if they're murderers. That's not justice. And it's too easy for that whole system to be abused when in our own day, we have people whose only crime, so-called, is that they were in the nation's capital, on January 6th, 2021, to protest what they regarded genuinely to be the certification of fraudulent election results, a victory it was claimed for Joe Biden, even though the evidence for all to see was highly questionable as to the integrity of the election results. Even though historically, these protesters would have every right to petition their government for a redress of grievances, and they couldn't do it online because social media just kept on taking things down and suspending accounts, just like my Twitter account is still suspended. My ex-account, as they're calling it these days, is still suspended for something as trivial as tweeting back at Chris Jolly Hale, with all due respect, I say this with respect, what a retarded thing to say. I'm still suspended. That tweet was March 26th, 2022, 1127 AM. Every time I try to click in to Twitter, I'm greeted with, thanks for your appeal. You appealed one tweet. And then I'm given a screenshot of that tweet. I appealed on March 26th, 2022. I have submitted follow-up appeals with no response. January 6th, 2021, a whole lot of Americans who love their country very much and are very afraid that their country is being systematically destroyed. We, the people are being taken captive and led to the slaughter. They came to the nation's capital to protest and many of them were arrested and have been indefinitely detained without charges or trials. In many cases, they've been put in solitary confinement for months. For what purpose? to torture them, to break them down, to make an example of them for everyone else, to terrify everyone else. That is not what the cities of refuge were supposed to be. In fact, as a matter of fact, the cities of refuge were cities. So someone could flee to a city of refuge and they would be living in community. Don't go outside the city walls because we can't guarantee your safety if you do, but you can mill about. You can walk around freely, you can visit people, get to know people, go to synagogue, study Torah, worship, eat, drink, rest. The opposite of solitary confinement. That's what cities of refuge were, even in the case of someone who had killed a man accidentally. Now tell me this, how many of the people indefinitely detained, put in solitary confinement by the Biden administration and the bureaucratic state here in the United States of America killed anybody. Even so far as accidentally killing someone, it didn't happen. That's not a thing. It's an evil injustice and oppressive and tyrannical and despotic and totalitarian what has been done to our countrymen and is currently still being done. And yet it continues. It is not doing justice by any stretch. It's arbitrary exercise of power to terrorize political opponents, to say to you and me, if you object, if you question, if you criticize, if you present evidence that the 2020 election was stolen, that it was fraudulent, that there was cheating and lying, we'll do this to you too. That's what we have right now. And it is unacceptable. And they're not content because... Former President Donald Trump is running again for president and because he is the front runner for the Republican nomination according to all polling data he is at least dead even with Joe Biden the democrats who are dishonest who are liars who are a brood of vipers who are sons of satan are going to see if they can throw him behind bars throw him in prison for the rest of his life and if that doesn't work Just like Tucker Carlson's interview with Trump this week on Twitter, it's probable that they're going to try and kill him and then they'll say, oh, oops, but it won't be an oops. They will be guilty of murder if they do this thing that they have in mind to do and all their rhetoric and all their behavior to this point actually makes it surprising they haven't killed him yet, but they're terrified to. If they do this thing, there will be no going back. If they do this thing, they may just get the insurrection they claim January 6th was. They may just get a civil war. And I'm not, I'm not threatening that. I'm not saying I want that. I'm not saying I hope for that. But I think they do. I think they want that. I think they're hoping to get it and to get it in such a way that they get to once and for all settle the score with their longstanding political enemies going back to the 1860s. They're still sore about Abraham Lincoln having emancipated the slaves, methinks. Let's talk about some current events items, though. More specific, more particular, then you don't have to take my word for it. If there's some question in your mind as to the trajectory of certain things right now, Tim Pierce over at the Daily Wire published a piece August 21st Biden's ATF, that is, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, which I would agree with those who say should be a convenience store, not a bureaucratic entity in the federal government. Biden's ATF has revoked hundreds of licenses in crackdown on gun dealers. As Pierce writes, ATF... Has revoked the licenses of 122 gun dealers so far this fiscal year, on top of the 90 licenses it pulled last year. Since 2013, the earliest year for which data is available, the previous record for licenses revoked in a single year was 81. The agency pulled just 27 licenses in fiscal year 2021, according to the Wall Street Journal. The ATF has previously hesitated before pulling a dealer's license gun. Sellers are helpful to law enforcement in identifying suspicious customers and aiding in investigations into illegal gun selling. The ATF has typically chosen to issue warnings instead of full license revocation. Quote, the gun dealers were our first line of defense against gun trafficking. End quote. Retired ATF Deputy Assistant Director Peter Forcelli told Wall Street Journal, quote, why are we now beating an ally into submission? End quote. the ATF previous to this administration had a, let's see if we can help you attitude. And some gun dealers took advantage of that, retired ATF official Rick Vazquez said. The ATF said in a statement that it is enforcing the law. Quote, federal firearms licensees are often our first line of defense against gun crime and are often a source of critical enforcement information that helps law enforcement identify straw purchasers and disrupt firearms trafficking schemes. ATF spokeswoman Christina Mastropaska told Fox News, quote, FFLs that willfully violate the law, however, must be held accountable. ATF conducts inspections to ensure compliance with applicable local, state, and federal laws and regulations and to educate licensees on the specific requirements of those laws and regulations. Skipping on down, in one instance, the ATF targeted a part-time gun dealer in a small town in Oklahoma, Russell Fincher. Told the Second Amendment Foundation's investigative journalism project that the ATF sent seven SUVs full of armed agents to raid his home after he invited them in. In a previous inspection, the agents had identified traces on several of his guns and a paperwork error. Fincher eventually agreed to give up his FFL while the ATF confiscated an estimated $50,000 worth of firearms. Quote, they have my life in the palm of their hands and they have very little accountability. I'm just trying to make a living, and it takes three jobs to make ends meet, dealing as little as I have with the ATF. When you ask them a specific question, they'll tell you it's a gray area. Well, a gray area can send you to jail. I'm not Hunter Biden. I'm not going to get my weapon charges dropped, end quote. It's not for no reason that this administration is going after gun dealers. They're going after the gun dealers because they want to go after the gun owners, This is a boa constrictor around the Second Amendment to the United States Constitution. That Second Amendment is there, not so that you can go out plinking targets with your friends, not so you can hunt, although that's great. That's a great thing to do, and we should be free to do it. Actually, honestly, the Second Amendment isn't even, first and foremost, so that you can deter violent criminals in your community. Petty crime. Although, again, that is a benefit. That is part of the reason why you have the right to keep and bear arms, and it shall not be infringed. The Second Amendment is there to protect against a tyrannical government, either domestic or foreign, oppressing you and your family and your friends and your communities without you being able to stop them, without you being able to protect yourself and your friends and your family and your community. Because this administration wants to oppress in every other way, they're arming IRS agents and training them in special tactics. They're weaponizing the bureaucratic state, even as they're attempting to disarm the American people, which should tell you quite a lot about what their intentions are moving forward. If you think it's bad right now, if you think it's chilling right now, just wait, because the trajectory that they're on is gun confiscation for law-abiding individual Americans. Declare things retroactively illegal that were totally legal when you acquired them and then go on a fishing expedition. If you've said something critical, if you've been frustrated with a certain political party, these are Gestapo tactics. Not theoretically, not hypothetically, these have been tried. This has been done. We've seen this movie. If we've read history, we know how it ends. The only peaceful resolution is if we do indeed have free and fair elections, which lead to people being put in positions of authority to rein in unelected, otherwise unaccountable bureaucrats in agencies like the ATF. That's the only peaceful resolution. For these kinds of Gestapo tactics. Otherwise, we're on a collision course. Another reason why this is terribly, terribly important for us to pay attention to and to know what we're about on is related to some reporting over at Not the Bee by Annie Oakley, not her real name. August 17th, three officers down, send everybody. Fargo police release body cam video of Syrian refugee who planned to shoot up packed street fair but was stopped by hero cop did you hear about this? Did it make even a blip in the corporate news media? I heard about it from not the bee. Thank you to not the bee. I'll play for you. Cut one of the audio from the body cam footage. And then I have some explaining to do some explaining. I'll sum up because there's too much. Here it is. Cut one. Take a listen. the officers down. The only one. He's the only one. That, right there, is Fargo, North Dakota. I've been to Fargo. I've been there several times. Fargo, on the interstate I ninety four, is a straight shot for the most part, at least when you get to Dickinson, from my hometown of Glendive, Montana. Five and a half hours. I flew out of Fargo. North Dakota, to get my wife and my four oldest sons and drive them the rest of the way to Montana when we moved there in 2012. I bought my wife a new wedding ring at the jewelry store in the mall in Fargo, North Dakota. I bought my first firearm at a sporting goods store in Fargo, North Dakota, when we stopped to stretch our legs on the way to our new home in Montana. My first firearm, Remington 870, tactical shotgun, just in case. It was the oil field. It was booming. Fargo, North Dakota had a Syrian refugee who came to this country in 2012, the same year that I moved back to my home state of Montana. The same year that I flew out of the airport in Fargo, bought my wife a new wedding ring, bought my first firearm because I was making... Enough money to be able to get my wife something better than a gold band from Walmart. Fargo, North Dakota, had a Syrian refugee who was naturalized as a citizen in 2019, opened fire on police officers standing in the grass. He was heavily armed, and his intention was to shoot up a street fair and to kill as many people as possible. He didn't expect to survive that, of course. The point of bringing this up is that the Democrats demanded, we let in people from all over the world, whoever wanted to come here, as long as they were reliably going to advance the democratic progressive agenda. People like myself argued online, this is a very dangerous idea. Yes, I realize there are bad things happening in Syria. I realize there are a lot of people who don't want to live in Syria right now. Also, I realize that there are a lot of surrounding Arab countries Where Arab is the language, Arabic customs, Arabic culture, Arabic religion, Islam, that could take these Syrian refugees in, the same folks who want you and I to be disarmed are the same folks who indefinitely detain American citizens for so-called insurrection, showing up to peacefully protest in our nation's capital. In 2021, they're the same folks who want to ban AR-15s and so-called high-capacity magazine firearms. And yet, here's my question. If I'm a husband and father in the crowd at the street fair in Fargo, North Dakota, and somebody like this Syrian refugee with an AK-47 and lots of ammunition starts to open fire And my family's in the crowd, and I don't have the ability to have a firearm on my person with sufficient deadliness, sufficient lethality to neutralize the threat. If he's already gotten through all of the law enforcement that stood between him and the street fair, what is that? It's a big deal that there are really people who want to kill you and me and our families because we're Americans or because we're conservatives or because we're Christians. It's a big deal that we would have the ability to protect innocent life against murderers. It's a big deal that the presumption of innocence applies to whoever the Democrats believe will advance their social and economic and political goals. But the presumption of guilt applies to whoever would disagree with them whoever would contradict them, whoever would challenge them, even just rhetorically or politically or economically. This is why it matters immensely that the ATF is going after FFLs and wants to go after law-abiding gun owners. This is why it's a big, big deal. They know better. They don't care. On a related note, let's consider another bit of reporting this by John Knox, August 17th at Not The Bee, The British people may not like it, but Islam is here and here to stay. I'll play for you, cut two. And this is Ben Q on Twitter. Thank you to John Knox and the lovely folks over at Not The B for embedding this tweet in the story so that I can actually see it. Here it is, cut two. Take a listen. You'll be excused to think that this is a church. But as is the case across the UK, we've took it over. It's now actually a mosque, a masjid. Christianity is depleting. Atheism is unfulfilling. Islam is here and it's here to stay. The British people, they may not like it. But as is the case with many things, there may be something which you don't like, which is good for you. So carry on making those churches for us. Keep them empty. We'll buy them in a few years' time and we'll make them into a mosque. Before I say anything else, let me address what I am sure your corporate news media and Democrat politicians and pseudo-intellectuals on the left, and if you went to public school, your public schools have told you to be ready to call me. You're going to want to call me Islamophobic. It is not an irrational concern that Islam is taking over the UK or Western Europe generally. It's not an irrational concern. It is a very valid concern. For those who say Christians need to stay out of politics and not get involved in making decisions together in their communities or else check their Christian convictions, their Christian ethics, their Christian worldview at the door, those people are the same people who insist we need to Hear more from Muslims in the US, in the UK, in Western Europe, and we need those people to be contradicted. We need those people who are saying Christianity bad, Islam good, silence the Christians, amplify the Muslims, run interference for them, make excuses, don't cover instances of violence, assault, rape, murder, terrorism. They need to be cross-examined. And we need to not be bullied into silence. This is also part of why I say that it's not an abstract thought exercise, and it's not trivial, and it's not irrelevant. The story of the older man in my family I'm related to in Billings, Montana, who was church-disciplined out of his church for sticking up for the patriarchs and the kings of the Old Testament against the claim that they were living in unrepentant sin Having multiple wives. Why that's important is because, one, it erodes your ability to do apologetics and discipleship and to have sound biblical hermeneutics, to exegete when you play onesies, twosies with the biblical text to affirm mere tradition of man. You make it easier for people to remain atheists and agnostics and secular humanists when you throw under the bus the patriarchs and the kings of the Old Testament because they were polygamists. That's problem number one. Problem number two is, it's a major problem, but problem number two is, when in the church we cannot discuss things, we cannot disagree, we cannot be reasonable, those with authority will use their authority to silence all questioning, all difference of opinion, even on something like this, Even if it's correct biblically or historically it would be accepted from earliest times in church history as a valid point of view, when that happens in the church, we are training Christians to submit unquestioningly, uncritically, to arbitrary exercises of power in broader society. And if Islam becomes dominant, what you are training your church people to do is submit unquestioningly to Islam which is all Islam even means, is submission. We are not Muslims. We're not the people who just say, submit in an external way. We're the people who believe that Christ is risen. Jesus Christ is God of very God, co-eternal, consubstantial, co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. We're the people who believe that the truth will set you free and who the Son sets free is free indeed. We're the people... We believe we must obey God, yes, but obey God rather than men when we can't do both. And thus, we set a very dangerous precedent within the church when we say you must obey men even if, from your reading of the biblical text, which is very easily defensible from a survey of church history, they're demanding that you take their word for it and be quiet and be silent in the church. Reason number three why it's a big deal, what's happened in Valley Bible Church in Billings, Montana with Joe Schreibes as the principal instigator is that as Islam becomes majority minority, the demographic in the UK due to birth rates in Western Europe due to birth rates, the Muslim minority becomes dominant politically, culturally, socially, you will, not you may, you will find that Polygamy is legalized and normalized because the Muslims are polygamists. If they can be, that's part of how they are pursuing their version of the Great Commission to force the whole world to submit to Islam. You have to factor in what you would say to a Muslim man who is considering converting to Christianity and attending your church if he has multiple wives. You have to factor that in. You have to consider that. And you're answer to that man, if he says, well, what would I do with my three wives? Your answer has to be read out of the biblical text. You cannot read things into the biblical text because at that point, if you do that, if you go down that road, you've lost them. We cannot accept tyrants in the church. Can you have an opinion? Absolutely. But you need to qualify what you say when it's an opinion as your opinion. The apostle Paul did this. We are not better than the Apostle Paul when we say we're going to muddy the waters, we're going to trample on the pasture lands that we are too full to eat. We're not better than the Apostle Paul. In fact, we're exactly the kind who are prophesied against by Ezekiel in the Old Testament. God Himself will oppose such shepherds, and He will be a shepherd to the sheep who have no shepherd otherwise. But we, If we would be shepherded by God himself, by Jesus Christ our Lord, the good shepherd, if we would be shepherded, we have to be willing to be reasonable with one another and we have to be Bereans and we have to be humble at the same time as we do justice and love mercy and not arbitrary, not filled with selfish ambition and vain conceit. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. One more story about this Concerning ongoing development and a book recommendation after we have concluded this story before we move on, Carlos Garcia, July 19th, 2023, TheBlaze.com, rioters reportedly stormed Swedish embassy in Iraq and lighted on fire in protest of Quran being burned in Stockholm. This is how Islam deals with problems, not by talking it out, not by having a debate not by reasoning, not by being reasonable, but with terrorism, with violence, with murder, with torture, destruction of property, and threats of the same intimidation. That's how you should expect the West to change if we will not return to God, if we will not get back to God's Word, Old Testament, New Testament informing our conception of justice and mercy and humility if god's word is not our standard for what is true if it's just our opinion my opinion your opinion my truth your truth you do you boo these people are chomping at the bit to burn down to burn down and to commandeer and to colonize and the same people who want to tell you and me that we're so bad we're so awful Donald Trump is worse than Hitler, he's a fascist, he's a Nazi, punch a Nazi, they will bow and scrape and apologize and kiss the ring and make excuses and run interference and cover it up when things like this happen, just like Carlos Garcia is reporting for The Blaze. You don't want a Swedish embassy in your country? Okay, fine. Maybe when this is acceptable and the Iraqi government doesn't have a handle on it enough to protect the embassies of foreign countries, maybe we all just go to our corners. Europe right now has the equivalent culturally, socially, theologically, politically of stage four cancer. If the U.S. would avoid the fate of Western Europe, we have to wise up right now. What the Democrats want to do is they want to bring in more and more people who will be dependent on them and keep them in power And they want a one-world government. They will use optics like this to advance their agenda, to control and to monitor everybody all the time, to go after anybody and everybody, to censor, to disenfranchise, to fine, to detain anybody. But they'll leave out that it's driven by Islamic political thought, Islamic culture, Islamic religion. And this is why Western civilization is so very important. If you don't want this happening to your embassy, to your street fair, to your town, your neighborhood, the time to speak up is not 10 years down the road. Not when you feel like it, when you think you have the time. No, no. The time is now. This is why, oh, by the way, when Trump ran in 2016 on a promise to secure the border with Mexico. This is why when he ran on going after ISIS, which was a big thing, this is why it was a good thing and not what the corporate news media wanted you to believe, not what the teachers unions wanted you to believe, not what the establishment of both political parties, Republican and Democrat, wanted you to believe. Trump was right and they wouldn't let him do half of what he had promised to do and what he wanted to do And they should have let him do it because you know what? Whether they would admit it or not, it would be good for them too to not have our country overrun with all of the villains of the world who hate us and want to kill us and want to take over our country. This is why it's so critically important that we not tamely, meekly, quietly, passively, lazily, irresponsibly surrender our right to free speech. Our right to assembly, our right to privacy, our right to keep and bear arms, our right to worship God according to the dictates of our conscience. They'll tell you on the front end, this is just what it is in a multicultural society. You have to accept that. But then all that, all of that will give way to this is just what it is when your country is majority Muslim. And it doesn't even have to be a majority Muslim country. If the demographic pressure is in favor of the Muslim population growing and expanding and getting ever more aggressive and dominant and pushy and forceful. They don't have to be the majority. They just have to be committed. And if we're not committed at all, we go the way of Europe, the direction that Europe is going right now. Some guy, for whatever reason, decides to rip pages out of a Quran, stomp on them and light the thing on fire in the street. And somehow that is the fault of the entire country of Sweden and the government of Sweden. Because if Sweden actually wanted peace with the Muslim world, Sweden would be doing whatever they have to to keep their citizens from burning a copy of the Quran. That's the message that's being communicated. That's what they want you to believe. But Douglas Murray has an excellent book on this, The Strange Death of Europe, which tells the story. It explains how this became a thing post-World War II, Europe, which had already become so very, very secular by that point, and that's a large part of why World War II and World War I were so destructive. It's not because Europe was so Christian. It's because Europe post-Enlightenment due to secular humanism and scientism and positivism believed in unbounded progress being possible if we unshackled ourselves From the constraint of God's word, the commands of God in the Bible, the teachings of Jesus, the authority of Jesus Christ our Lord. Post World War II, the elites, the industrial giants, the academics, the intellectuals, the so called experts decided they would repopulate Europe and rebuild Europe by importing Muslims from North Africa, from the Middle East from Pakistan, and they have, and they did. And look how that's going. As they imported more, and they convinced more and more of the common people to fill themselves with self-loathing, to reject the goodness of God, because somehow this is all God's fault, that cities were bombed out, that the Nazis did what they did. That was all Christianity. No, it wasn't. But it was Christians having thrown in the towel on the inerrancy of Scripture, the authority of God's Word, The purity of the gospel, which was delivered once for all, it does not need to be touched up. It does not need to be upgraded or augmented. Thank you very much. The majority of pastors in the German church just quietly went along with the Nazis co-opting their faith. And you, if you listen to the corporate news media, if you were trained up in the way you should not go in the public education system, you were told that the Republicans do this. The Republicans are... The ones who corrupt the gospel. Listen, here's the true story. Liberal theology, round about J. Gresham Machen's time, early 20th century, late 19th century. Liberal theology made major gains, taking over seminaries and universities, our country's best and brightest institutes of higher learning. Liberal theology displaced. Historically orthodox Christian teaching and training and equipping of pastors and laypeople alike. Liberal theology took over the leadership of major denominations in the US. And all of a sudden, whether you were a conservative or you were a progressive, you were going to get, if you were going to become the future leadership of any political movement, any organization, worth mentioning, any institution, any church, any denomination, any corporation, you were going to get your theological training, if you got any theological training, you were going to get it probably from a liberal theologian. The Republican Party has been most resistant, not enough resistant, but most resistant to this. And yet, insofar as we have one political party or the other, which most exemplifies The danger inherent to liberal theology and the false gospel of liberal theology, it's the Democrats. It's the progressives. They sprinkle in a little bit of Jesus said to love your neighbor as yourself. And therefore you have to affirm and attend and bake the cake for and shoot the photos for my gay wedding. You have to use preferred pronouns. Now you have to send your child off to be taught in the public schools to use preferred pronouns or to change their own gender to sleep around, to be promiscuous. That's what loving your neighbor means. No, that's what liberal theology gives you. That's what hell hath wrought. The moderate Republicans are the ones who sprinkle in a little bit of God talk, but they say, Lord, Lord, and they don't know him. The moderate Republicans are the ones who have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. They don't obey Christ. They don't obey God. Every chance they get, They'll say, God bless America, but they'll also make policy decisions and campaign promises and they'll enact legislation and they'll enforce legislation, which is not just, according to God. It's unjust. It's wicked. It's arbitrary. It's a miscarriage of justice. They'll cut deals and they call that politics. And it's not politics. It's corruption. And yet the principles of the Republican Party are unequivocally Better principles. When you read the platform itself, it is a better platform, more consistent with biblical Christianity than the platform of the Democrats, which is about murder of the unborn. It's about sexual degeneracy. It's transgressive. It's not progressive. It's transgressive and totalitarian. This is not right versus left anymore. This is good versus evil. And the moderates who want to sprinkle in a little bit of concession for what is evil. We don't need them, not like that, not men without chests, as C.S. Lewis would call them. No, no, we need to be about truth, or it's over, and we're done for. Speaking of the truth, Lisa Richwine over at Reuters published a piece, August twenty third. Trump's debate counterprogramming draws millions of views on X. No, I'm not saying that everything Donald Trump says is true. That's not why I say speaking of. But I say speaking of truth, it seems to me as though Trump really does believe the things that he's saying as he says them. Just because you don't like what it is that he truly believes and what his supporters believe and what members of his administration, his cabinet, his campaign believe. Just because you don't like it, that doesn't mean that they don't really believe these things are true. And yet, in a functioning country, a functional political system, a functional republic, because we have a republic, madam, if you can keep it, it would be true that he says X, Y, and Z, and that he really thinks that you should assume, you should assume that he really does believe what he's saying and that he's not just lying and making things up, in a functioning republic, you would be encouraged to analyze and assess in context what he's saying for whether it is in fact true, whether it accords with objective reality, not whether it accords with the political ambitions of career politicians or major corporations or intellectuals in academia. No, no. Whether the things Donald Trump says in his interview with Tucker Carlson are true is determined by consideration of God's word and the natural order. Using sound reason and testing sound reason through discourse. Polite, respectful, considerate, measured, sustained, deliberate, intentional, organized, orderly discourse. Now, I say that and you may counter. Oh, but wait, Trump doesn't do any of that. <laughs> he is a bull in a china shop. He is half the reason why we can't have recent discourse. He's been so polarizing and he said ugly things about celebrities, journalists, politicians, members of the public, This guy, he's the antithesis. He's the opposite of all that. And I would ask you to hear me out when I say what I say next. If for decades, Neil Postman's portrayal of our consumption of media to get something that approximates an informed opinion about current events, foreign affairs, developments at home and abroad. If something approximating Neil Postman's characterization is what we've been dealt and what we've been subjected to for generations now, and if the majority of us are no longer literate, reasonable, measured, considered, but rather every piece of information, every story is spun, manipulated, selectively edited endlessly to entertain as much or more as to inform or persuade then Trump coming in and saying unflattering things, critical things, you might say mean things about people who were in media or who were in positions of political power and influence, Democrat and Republican, may have been, may still be on the whole small potatoes compared with whether the shoes fit. What I mean by that is, if we go back to the Gospels, for instance, the only example we have in all of human history of someone who's ever called another person an ugly thing and been absolutely blameless in doing so, the only person, Trump's not blameless, you're not blameless, I'm not blameless, none of us are blameless, Jesus was blameless when he called the Pharisees blind guides, hypocrites, whitewashed tombs, a brood of vipers, sons of their father, the devil, publicly. It wasn't for no reason that the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law wanted to kill Jesus. It's because he insulted them, or you might say he accurately described them. Everybody else was busy averting their eyes, piling up the honorifics or else giving way to these pompous asses. And Jesus didn't play that game. In fact, the most loving thing he could do was call them what they were. And going back to Marcus Aurelius, by the way, this is what he advises very strongly in meditations written in the 2nd century AD. He strongly advises the reader who would consider his philosophy to call things what they are. Don't too readily agree you'll lose the respect of everybody and you'll undermine your capacity to disagree when you ought to, why would you do that? That's partiality. It's cowardice. That's not virtue. It's not wise. But when you disagree, if you disagree with a pompous ass, someone who's puffed up, someone who is used to bullying and bluffing and bribing their way to getting whatever they want, they will hate you. No two ways about it. They will hate you. Proverbs tells us not to correct a fool, lest you become like him, but correct a fool in his folly so that he won't be wise in his own eyes. Sometimes the wisest thing is to just not bother. Don't waste your time. But when we're dealing with people who've been entrusted with reporting on what's happening in the world that pertains to us or making powerful decisions on our behalf, in our name, with our resources, with our blood and treasure on the line, if they make the wrong choice, If they're foolish or if they are wicked, it's not an option to just let that be without comment if you are running for president of the United States and these people are in the way and they're making a mess of things and they've been making a mess of things. If they are in fact corrupt, blind guides, hypocrites, it may be the most loving thing is to make sure that they're not wise in their own eyes because it says in Proverbs also, That there is more hope for a fool than there is for a man who's wise in his own eyes. Why do you correct a fool? So that he doesn't become wise in his own eyes. Because at least there might be some chance that at a certain point, enough critical mass of negative consequences for foolish behavior will encourage reflection on maybe we should do something different and maybe I was wrong and I'm sorry. But the man who is wise in his own eyes will hate you. A fool will hate you when you try to correct them and Our corporate news media is filled with both kinds of people. It's a rarity to find someone who is confident and also not corrupt. And corruption is folly because there's a God in heaven who knows. When you're lying, he knows. When you're complicit in covering up the crimes of the guilty, he knows. When you're complicit in condemning the innocent, he knows. He will not hold you guiltless. That would not be either just or merciful actually because if you did it in a premeditated way you get together with a group of other people and you plan this out day after day week after week month after month how you will condemn the innocent and defraud and oppress the poor and how you will run interference for and make sure that they get scot free off without any charges the guilty so long as they have wealth and power and they're well connected when you do that intentionally with impunity almost no language is too strong in condemning what you are guilty of. And this is why the people most vulnerable who are most accustomed to being on the losing end of these transactions and the reporting and the decision-making are not deterred by Donald Trump tweeting mean things. And I see he's back on Twitter as of last night after being booked in Fulton County, Georgia on yet another Trumped up charge, no pun intended, but people like me who are used to working in jobs where others talk like that, we may not always like that kind of language or that way of relating to people, but you know what we hate even more than that kind of language? When the circumstances actually merit, when the personalities involved get away with impunity, destroying lives and livelihoods through lying and deceit, They take bribes, they extort, they blackmail, they assassinate character. It's even worse when they get away with that and nobody stands up to them. And Trump stood up to them and is still standing up to them. And that makes him heroic. And I would agree with Victor Davis Hanson in the case for Trump. Trump is a tragic hero. He is the gunslinger who comes into a town where most of the people have just accepted that the bandits run things. The sheriff doesn't do anything about it. He's outgunned, outnumbered, old and tired. And maybe even he gets a little bit on the side to look the other way. He just happens to be busy when the bandits are going to pull off their heists and harass innocent women, hardworking men, unattended to children. Trump is the gunslinger who comes into town and he's just passing through And somebody decides to spit in his drink because they just want to see that he's willing for all the other townspeople to notice. He wants to see if there's going to be deference. Will you affirm the way we do things around here? Or are we going to have a problem? Trump is the gunslinger who is not going to take that sitting down. And he's not just going to carry on. Now it's personal. You spit in my drink. Hurt my horse or my dog, insult my mother, bully innocent women and children, harass men who've been left to fend for themselves against the wolves. What do you get? You get the gunslinger saying, That's enough. This business of sitting down with Tucker Carlson instead of going to the Fox News debate, that was a good decision. That was wise. That was shrewd. I wanted to see him debate the other candidates, but not with Fox News calling it. Not with them running the show. No, thanks. How about this? Here's an idea. Have another debate and have Tucker Carlson moderate the debate. That would be something. See how many of those other guys show up for that debate. There's an idea. Reuters reports the 46-minute conversation with Tucker Carlson drew more than 74 million views, according to stats on the platform that is formerly Twitter, now X, 74 million is a lot. That's a lot of viewers. That's around about 20 times the number of views Fox thinks they were able to garner for the debate with everybody else combined. That's astounding. But you can say, I don't like Trump. You could say, I don't like the things he says. You could say, I don't like the things he does. You could say, I don't trust him. You can say, I disapprove of his life choices. At the end of the day, he has been the best president of my lifetime, at least since Ronald Reagan. Donald Trump did a heroic job running for president in 2016, serving as president for four years. He made some bad calls, made some bad decisions, some poor choices. But going back to Joshua chapter. 20 and 21 again. And I'll leave you with this for this episode. The cities of refuge are for those who have unintentionally, without malice, made wrong choices. And in this case, the cities of refuge are for those even who have killed someone accidentally. But they didn't do it because they hate the person, they didn't do it in a premeditated way, they didn't intend to kill that person. It was an accident. How much more so should we extend mercy to those who either have been set up, because there is quite a lot of hatred directed at them, they've been set up to not fulfill certain things they said they were going to do, or to do other things that are a bad idea. You shouldn't say that. You shouldn't do that. I don't know who's advising you on this, but that is the wrong way. DeSantis is right when he says, Trump should have fired Fauci. That would have been far, far better. That was a bad call. You trusted the wrong person in that case. But you know what? I genuinely believe Trump made an honest mistake there. It was unintentional. And by the time he realized his mistake, it was pretty well too late. I could be wrong about that. And quite frankly, this is one of the reasons why I am in favor of Ron DeSantis. I think Ron DeSantis is a better choice moving forward. Now, if he does not get the nomination... If Vivek Ramaswamy does not get the nomination, if Trump does get the nomination and the polling numbers, barring assassination, the polling numbers certainly do seem to indicate that Trump will get the nomination of the Republican party. If he does get the nomination, I will probably vote for him. I certainly, I certainly, without question, without reservation, would prefer him as president of the United States of America over anybody the Democrats are going to put forward whether we're talking Joe Biden or we're talking Gavin Newsom, but we'll see, right? I think what we're dealing with on the other side of the aisle is stubborn, premeditated, malicious, arrogance, wise in their own eyes, fools. They don't love what is good. They love transgression. They don't love what is true. They love lying all day long. If their lips are moving, they're lying about somebody about something, false promises, bribes, and slanders and smears of anybody who might successfully compete with them for votes. These people should not be allowed to do what they do to you and to me and to our loved ones with impunity. And I pray to God that he himself will deliver us from these evil men and women. If it be the Lord's will that Trump serves another four years, then so be it. Amen. I would be content. It is not my first choice, but God knows what's best. And that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.